Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 152 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. My name is Barbara. How are you? I'm doing well and yourself. Fantastic. We are nice. recording this one week early because I'm getting the heck out of Dodge and going to Wyoming. I still don't know why. <laughs> well, it's my dad's 80th birthday and yeah. that's where he wants to celebrate it. So he's taking all of our families out there and we've got a house and we're going to freeze our asses off. Do you have anything planned? Skiing? Snowboarding? Check. Snow? Check. I don't know. <laughs> Well, let's see. Skiing, check. Snowboarding, check. We're going to go up to Yellowstone. We rented like a um, ski van where that's the only way you can get up there because of all the snow. Whoa. Check that out. And uh, Do you know how to ski? Hell yeah, I know how to ski. I'm an athlete. Come on. Get a hold of yourself. I run doesn't mean I know how to do gymnastics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, skiing's one of my favorites. So yes, I don't get to do it often because I live in Florida, but we used to go out to Mount Hood and uh, North Carolina. And yes, I like to ski super fast. Nice, nice. Well, watch yourself in that foot of yours that you injured recently. (laughs) Let's not re-injure it. I'm back up and running again. Thank you for acknowledging. I'm all healed up. With nice. two and a half months of not running, that was not a good time. So yeah, well, don't re-injure it falling down a mountain. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty stupid area to injure. So it is. So we are in the last week of February, and soon it will be the month for the first dental conference of the year. And there's still plenty of time to register. The good old Dental Laboratory Association of Texas, or the DLAT, as we learned last year, is having their annual conference on March 26th to the 27th in Grapevine, Texas. Grapevine, Texas. And we will be there again, live, not live, recording remotely from the Oregon booth. So make sure you head over to the DLAT.org to learn more about this amazing expo and to register. And even though we can't make it, Just remember that the more that go to live meetings, the more we can convince other conventions that it's okay to proceed with happening all over the country, like the Vision 21 meeting that's April 8th to the 10th at the Gaylord Opryland Resort in Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) And speaking of the Vision 21 meeting, it was a perfect opportunity to talk to a lab owner that we briefly talked to at last year's Vision, And now he's hosting a panel discussion at the upcoming show. And we'd like to welcome to the podcast Mike Farago from Concord Dental Lab that's located just outside of Boston. Mike grew up as a technician's son and came into the industry in a different way than what we usually hear on this podcast. Mike talks about taking over a lab with no personal technical experience, And that's given him a unique perspective on running a business that relies so much on people's skills as much as it relies on staying current with technology. With a passion for our industry and an appreciation for those that can do it, we chat with Mike Fargo. Mike Fargo. Fargo. Mike Fargo. And we chat with Mike Fargo. 
Hey, Barb. I called Oradent the other day about their P5 milling machine. Super. How did it go? I was introduced to the consumables Oradent offers, such as Delta Zirconia, Oradent ZR, Oradent cutting tools, and Quest PMMA. How convenient. You know what? You can buy the mill and the materials from them. Yeah, if you think that's convenient, you can also buy furnaces by NeighborTherm, and vacuums by Renfert. Plus, I don't have to talk to a different person every time I call. I have a rep dedicated just for me. I have heard that their service is amazing. Absolutely. Oradent offers high-quality cutting tools made here in the USA, and they have great options for zirconia. Delta Zirconia, which is a super cost savings for labs, and Oradent ZR, made proudly here in the U.S. of A. Do they still offer dental alloys? You know, Oradent started off manufacturing alloys and will always provide high-quality alloys for dental labs, one of the few companies in the U.S. to still manufacture their own alloys. Is there anything that they don't supply dental labs? Actually, they also offer dental scanners and a 3D printer from Shining 3D. Hold up. Does that scanner have its own design software? Actually, Oradent offers ExoCAD for your designing needs. Nice. I'm not the best with technology and setting up all of this equipment, just saying. Well, we know, but that's <laughs> fine. Oradent has a technical support team who can help with installing or troubleshooting any problems. Wow, Oradent definitely is a one-stop shop for any dental lab's needs. How do we get in touch with them? You can always call our friends at Oradent at one 800 422 7373 or you can visit them at their website at oradent.com we super appreciate your support of the podcast oradent thank you so much voices from the bench the interview we were talking to somebody from fargo and i was like ugh, sorry to hear that <laughs> Oh, One movie boy. ruined your whole town. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> Can't recover from that. <laughs> so true. We are excited to have on the podcast today, Mike Farago from Concord Dental Lab. Mike, how are you today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Oh, doing fantastic. <laughs> so, Mike, I met you last year at Visions. Exactly. For the first time, you were up on stage with a whole bunch of friends of ours. What was the topic? It was a second generation yeah. lab owner. Exactly. Oh, my yeah. favorite. Yeah, we, we had some fun with that. Yeah, that thing went over real well. And we actually recorded a little bit. You and Dory stopped by mm-hmm. our little booth we were recording at. And we talked briefly, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, and you sound like you're killing it over there in the Boston area, doing some really crazy stuff. Yeah. So tell us, Mike, I know your father's in the business, but tell us a story about Concord. Yeah. Well, the lab itself has been around since 1962, so it's been hanging around yeah. for a bit. Uh, awesome. It was founded by uh, the Tarosian family, and Carl Tarosian founded it. His son, Eric, joined the business with him. My father joined in the early 90s as Eric's partner, and the two of them bought out Eric's dad, and they worked as a partnership for a long time, close to a decade. And my dad made the decision in the early 2000s to see if Eric wanted to be bought out. So Eric was on board with that, and they remain good friends. Eric actually still works at the lab, so he's there every day. Yep. So my dad bought the lab in 2002, somewhere around there. I joined in 2008. 
as like a consulting project. Like I swung through on a Friday just to help out with something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. still there. So it was a long consulting project. But in my time there, it was right around, you know, 2007, 2008 was really when the CAD CAM explosion kind of started in the mm -hmm. lab space. So as I'm there working on my project, which was bringing in a multi-line phone system, they had only had one phone line and they didn't have any internet connection at the time. Wow. So I was there to bring in internet and phone. And I'm reading all these magazines that were on the lunch table about this cool new technology that's coming into the space. At the time, I was technically still in college. I was finishing up my undergrad degree, but I was working essentially full-time at the same time doing business consulting. I fell into some consulting roles early in college with some you know, lucky breaks with a few professors and kind of built a client list for myself. And I fell in love with it. So without even being out of college, you're consulting businesses? I was, yeah. It, wow. It's a positive and a negative story. You know, I was recruited freshman year by a friend of a professor because I'm a third generation entrepreneur. You know, my father's always owned his own company. Mm -hmm. My grandfather always owned his own company. I started my first company when I was 12, a landscaping company, and it, it was just, it's something I love to do. And small business has really always been my passion because I grew up in that lifestyle, understanding the idea that when a family comes together at the dinner table, I understand what it's like where 90% of the conversation revolves around the business. I understand how connected people are to their small businesses. Mm -hmm. So I kind of fell in love with that. And it turned out a very short version of a long story. You know, my boss at the time that hired me at age 19 particularly wanted some young people because he was doing some less than above board business practices. So, oh. yeah, <laughs> well said, get the job done, but wouldn't ask questions, you know, didn't know enough to ask questions. So I say it's a good and a bad story because I was introduced to a lot of really great clients. I got to cut my teeth in business consulting. I learned a lot about business valuation, mergers, acquisitions. I mean, 20 years old, I was in D.C. in a boardroom at Lockheed, you know, having a conversation wow. with managers at Lockheed. And Whoa. I never in a million years would have had that opportunity to have the experience, you know, if it wasn't for a few, you know, borderline criminals that decided they wanted to take a chance on me. <laughs> so, you know, when... <laughs> take this money home and bury it for me. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going to pay you an extra couple bucks an hour. Don't ask any questions. And, you know, at 19, you say, all right, you know, I, yeah. it's, it's beer money, you know? <laughs> so as their pyramid kind of collapsed, there were a few clients that reached out to me that I had worked with and asked if I'd continue to work with them. So I ended up with my own, you know, small client list. And as far as I knew, that was going to be the first five years of my career, mm -hmm. really getting the opportunity to hang out with all these people and learn all these different industries and just absorb as much knowledge as I could. So when I got to the lab and was working on this project and saw all these kind of really cool stuff happening in the lab space, I said to my dad, you know, I think I'm interested here. And mm. this is after my entire life, my dad telling me, stay away from the lab, stay away from the lab, stay away from the lab. <laughs> you, know, he, you know, go go work with your brain. Don't work with your hands is what he always used to tell me. And, mm. Are you serious? Yeah. You know, you're like was, the only one I've ever heard say that. So uh, what? why? Why was he trying to scare you away? I usually second generations are in the lab, you know, from 10 on or nine on. Yeah. You know. I grew up on the floor of the laboratory, you know, I'd play while my dad was working and yep. you know, he'd always get me Play-Doh and I'd make my little teeth next to him while I could. <laughs> and 
but there was never really that push to get into the lab space. And I think from my dad, you know, his background, he started as an in-house technician for uh, Lloyd Miller, who was a uh, prosthodontist here in New England, kind of a world-renowned prosthodontist who had a really strict focus on the lab. You know, he was mm-hmm. one of the first prosthodontists that built really in-depth in-house laboratory. And this was like the upper echelons of what it meant to be in the lab space. Super intense. Yeah. My dad's experience in the lab was very intense and he loved it. It was perfect for him. But he knew from his point of view, if I didn't have a real passion for the art, then it was going to be torture for me. Yep. You'd work yourself to death. Sure. Exactly. And quite frankly, I watched my dad do that, you know, even in 2008 at the laboratory, you know, at Concord, it was, you know, my father and Eric, and they had a handful of other technicians. It was not a business. It was essentially like every other small laboratory. It was a really, really amazing job that they had made for themselves because there was no sustainability without them. They were the hands. Yeah. They were the client relations. So if at any given time, my father fell and broke his arm, there goes 25% of the business. Mm, sure it's a very precarious position to be in that's really why my father made the jump from being a solo technician to jumping into wanting to join Concord. because when i was born you know i'm an only child but when i was born that kind of shakes things up a little bit like you realize all right if one of my five high-end clients decides to retire or gets hit by a bus or whatever happens that's a huge impact to your livelihood Yeah. yeah you know being raised in lloyd's laboratory The focus was never really on anything other than making the absolute best dental restoration you could. So the idea of marketing and business structure and longevity and sustainability, those things weren't discussed. That wasn't even, you know, a thought. It was you come in every day, you make the best restoration you can possibly make, and you go home when you're done. So, you know, my father's long-term plan at the time was essentially keep working until he couldn't work anymore. He loves what he does. There was never a pain for him at all to go into the laboratory. So the plan was essentially to keep this really great laboratory that was, you know, relatively small at the time, but sustainable for him and the team that he had. But there was never really any thought beyond that. This was the vehicle that was going to take him to the finish line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I was sitting there reading those magazines while I'm waiting for the phone to be installed, and I say, you know, I see some things here. And, you know, the thing that kind of caught my eye is I had been working with a client at the time. It was a third generation printing company. So this was a Greek family that I worked with in Boston, and they did printing. You know, talk about an industry that has been decimated by technology. You're talking like paper printing. Paper printing. Like, oh, you know, yeah. Let me, let me bring <laughs> you my restaurant menus and print them for me type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It was a very difficult challenge for that third generation to kind of come up with a game plan to survive. And we had just finished this really cool project with them. And I thought that there was a lot of parallel that I could draw between what we did with them and what was happening in the dental lab space. So when I first started at the lab, my dad said, you know, you are absolutely welcome to do anything you want. I don't know for sure that there's any money in the budget to pay you. So (laughs) whatever you can create is yours to keep. So, and essentially he handed his company to me, you know, he, no questions asked. Obviously in the first year or two, we worked very closely together, but as he started to see progress, (laughs) yeah, you know, the, the things that we were talking about and Quite frankly, taking a company that had been open since 62 and starting this project wasn't pretty at the beginning. I mean, we're talking about reviewing 
accounting relationships with people that have been working with the company for 20 years and ruffling feathers and asking questions that hadn't been asked before. And especially when you come in in this position of, oh, that's the boss's son, you know, everyone yeah. needs that to begin with. And now the boss's son is kind of being an idiot and asking questions I don't want him to ask. Oh, yeah. So the first few years were rough. It was, you know, a lot of foundation building. But from there, kind of as I took a little bit more time out of the city and would take the train home on Thursday nights, get a home-cooked meal from my mom and spend Friday at the lab. It kind of became something that we both understood that there was a future here, that there was opportunity. So we kind of made the agreement that I'd continue on the path we were on. I was still consulting on the side. You know, I hadn't kind of put all my eggs in this basket yet, but for the next three or four years, it was kind of on that same path of rebuilding and looking at technology, but not necessarily pulling the trigger yet, just making some plans for what would come next. And eventually the time came where I said, you know, I'm ready. I want to come on full time. I'll come on as chief operating officer and I want to make a complete and total shift to digital. Wow. Takes balls, nice. It, it was huge balls. Saying. It was scary. It, yeah. it was definitely scary. There were a lot of sleepless nights there at the beginning, especially since my father's position on it is he's not a technology guy. So yeah. he said, you know, I can build the bridge between the analog and the digital. I, you know, he knows the analog in his sleep. Yeah. And that was really what kind of intrigued me is that I have access to someone who knows everything there is to know inside and out about analog dental technology. Yeah. So he can be the eyes kind of overseeing saying, no, this isn't right. This isn't going to work. This is insufficient to our quality standard, which is really the beacon that we held above all else is that we're going to make this digital transition. Our clients essentially can't know about it. If they see a change at all, anything other than an improvement, then we've failed. Yeah. You know, that was risky. And it was lucky for me at the time that this new little company was opening up about 45 minutes away from the lab called Custom Automated Prosthetics, CAP. Oh, oh yeah, wow. that was very, very lucky for me. And, you know, one of the founders, Bob Cohen and my dad, their careers, they're about the same age. So their careers have kind of intertwined each other. They know each other. They know all the same people. And I won't say the name of a system, but I made a decision to look into a system that CAP didn't sell at the time, a full CAD CAM system. And somehow word made out that we were looking at it. And one day I got a call at the lab and it was Bob Cohen. And I had never spoken to him, <laughs> oh, I, no. I, but I knew of Bob. My dad had talked highly of Bob forever. And he said, you don't know me. He said, I, I don't ask that you take my word fully, but the system you're looking at, I don't want you to buy it. He said, mm -hmm. I want you to wait. And I want you to come see what we're working on. And then you can make a decision. That's pretty cool. Did he do that out of respect to your dad? Or I mean, like, he what? Did. Wow. In the lab space, I find it really interesting. There is, for an industry that's a little bit cutthroat where it doesn't need to be cutthroat, there is a lot of areas of softness. And there's a yeah. lot of respect for tradition and transition from one generation to another. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the New England lab space is tiny. You know, there aren't that many of us here. And a few weeks later, my dad and I were in this tiny little room in Bob's lab, essentially for what was the first presentation of CAP, you know, introducing what they thought this company was going to be and what they planned on selling. And they got my mindset to shift. And the shift was not buying an all-in-one lab system, but start with scanning. Build towards what works for you in incremental steps rather than jumping in with both feet. And essentially, that's where we ended up buying our first three-shape scanner. 
And from there, we got comfortable with scanning. We were scanning and sending out to a couple different laboratories to do our milling. Mm -hmm. Even at the beginning, we were sending out to have some designs done because we had a bunch of waxers. We didn't have digital designers. Yeah. So that was kind of the transition of taking that time to build up our digital knowledge and our experience. And really what was most important for me was to build the data that justified making this kind of large investment. Hmm. So we were able to bring in scanning, we saw the return on it, and then we dug deeper into converting some of our waxers to designers. And then from there, we brought in our first Roland mill, and it just has kind of built on that model as it goes. And from there, I've built my kind of standard that I hold all of our new equipment purchases to. I have a, a formula that my expectation is that every piece of equipment that I bring in will see a 14% return on in the investment in the first two years. And mm -hmm. After the two years, I expect a growing return beyond that. And I hold every single piece of equipment to that standard. And how did you come up with the 14%? Well, really what I did is I took a look at what I thought I wanted the growth of the laboratory to be. Mm -hmm. And essentially what I did is figured out if I took my money, you know, I, I view my investment in the laboratory no different than investing in any other business. And if I were to take my money to the stock market, if I were to buy a Subway franchise, if I were to do just about anything else that anyone does with their money, mm -hmm. they have an expected return. Yep. And I have an expected return on my money at the laboratory of somewhere around 16%. Not necessarily year over year, mm -hmm. but on an ongoing rolling basis, I expect to see a 16% return on my investment. Mm -hmm. So in looking at the equipment, my goal was really to have a benchmark to determine if a piece of equipment was performing to the standard that these really trustworthy sales reps that sold me <laughs> say that it's going yeah. And it's really just a benchmark for us. And to realize, yeah. are we allocating our resources effectively? I see a lot of small laboratories. The name of the game in the lab space is efficiency. Yeah. The margins aren't yeah. big enough to be spending money on stuff that you don't need. And I see a lab that's smaller than ours, and they've got six times the number of mills and 3D printers. And I'm saying, those are cool toys, but that's your profit. Yeah. yeah. That's your retirement. And, and I understand that mindset because we have this really cool dynamic in the lab where my dad's the tech guy. He thinks that way. You know, he thinks dental technology overall, you know, dental technology over profits. Yeah. yeah. And two of us get to kind of play that tug of war all the time of, yeah, this is the direction you can go with that. But, you know, here's what we're sacrificing. Here's the project in the future that we're giving up by allocating these resources in that direction. But you've had to have gotten equipment that didn't get you that 14%. I mean, we've all made those bad purchases. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have one in the lab right now, actually, that, that didn't meet its number. And essentially what I do with that is there's two options. We either take a team approach to looking at the piece of equipment and determining, okay, is there a product line we can bring on? to maximize the efficiency of this piece of equipment? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that we can reallocate our working resources? Meaning, is there a technician that's currently not using the machine that could be using the machine in order to free up their time that we can then essentially get more return elsewhere in the laboratory? Or is it time for this piece of equipment to go? And mm. in the lab space, we're very lucky that there's a very, very healthy used equipment market. There's a lot of people that are looking to buy used equipment rather than new. So the opportunity to get rid of a piece of equipment is much easier here. For example, the printing space. There aren't a lot of people looking for a, a two-ton printing machine. Yeah. But, but in the lab space... If you've got a small 3D printer that you want to get rid of, there's probably someone looking for it. Interesting. Where do you usually go to sell those kind of things? 
honestly, the first place I start is with the sales reps. You know, I, I reach out to our contacts at other companies and I say, yeah, I have this. Do you know anyone who might want it? And 95% of our equipment, that's how I've, I've moved it somewhere else is by just offering it elsewhere. Yeah. So you came into your father's lab to hook up internet, which I still think is funny. <laughs> yeah. How many employees at that time were there? At the time, it was my father, Eric, and I think they had four other employees. What was their reaction with you wanting to go digital? Were they on board? Were they kind of reluctant? It was a mixed bag. Yeah. I can say that there were a few that unfortunately are no longer on the journey with us that were completely against it. Wow. And there were a few that were very excited about it. And it was tough. It, the timing was tough because yeah. the digital wave hadn't really crashed yet. It was building, but it wasn't in everyone's face. So there were uh -huh. a lot of people that kind of viewed it as a little bit risky, you know, kind of crazy, particularly when you have a lab that was doing fine. You know, there was really no reason to question what was happening. We had happy yeah. clients. We had enough work to fill everyone's day every day. You know, quite frankly, at the time, they were kind of turning away new clients because they didn't have room for them. And that was kind of the comfortable position to be. So it was definitely a tough, a tough sell for certain yeah. Yeah, that happened with us too when we transitioned. You know, you kind of have to weed the, the people out, unfortunately, that don't want to go on the bus. And you either loved it or you hated it. You either believed in it or you didn't. And it's tough, but you got to move forward. Some people don't like change, especially exactly. general technicians. <laughs> and it's my goal, not just in the laboratory, but just in about any business that I own or have a management stake in or am a part of. I don't like to fire people. I don't see any reason to fire somebody. No. You know, if you're open and transparent with what the plan is for the company, it's up to that individual to come to you and say, I don't see a seat on this bus for me. And mm. I think if you can maintain an environment and a culture that's fair, transparent, no surprises, provide alternate opportunities, our waxers, if they didn't want to learn digital design, my first question is, okay, what else in the laboratory do you want to do? And from there, you can start a conversation mm -hmm. to say, well, by the decisions that you're making, you're limiting your own future in this industry. Uh, I can't dictate yep. where we're going. Right. I can dictate where I want the laboratory to go, but the industry is going to go wherever it wants to go. So, you know, I, I really don't like to fire anybody. I like to set a really clear standard of where we're going and let them make the decision if, if this is the right place for them or not. That's such a better way to operate. It's a lot less stressful. It really is. <laughs> so where are you guys now? How many technicians are there currently? As of right now, we are, there's, I think, 22 on staff. Nice. You know, that includes a couple of delivery drivers, front office, some part-timers in scanning. But I've always said that technology is never my plan. You know, I don't use technology to replace employees. You yeah. know, it's always a tool. But there are certain sizes where the laboratory reaches that technology essentially prevents you from needing to hire more team members. So we are not at the highest headcount right now that we've ever been before, but we are at our highest production point that we've ever been. Goes hand in hand, doesn't it? It really, it does. It does. And it's hard because I would love to have a building full of tons of people, you know, and, and to me, that's kind of the reward of a small business is you're having an impact on real people. But in the industry where efficiency is so important and margins are so small, having extra bodies lying around just isn't an option. And really, that's why, you know, outside of our 22 team members here in the U.S., we have four in Mumbai, India, that are our overflow designers. That became a requirement for us. We couldn't find a way to deal with the 
ebbs and flows of workflow with just our existing team members. You know, you can have cross-training, which we do. So with our cross-training, we have five or six people on staff who can do digital design. But depending upon workflow, that doesn't mean you can have all of those people doing digital design all the time. They have mm-hmm. requirements to be in other departments. And we dabbled a little bit with outsourced design, and there are some really, really great companies out there for that. But because we only needed it on a random sporadic basis, it was very difficult to get consistency. And yeah. for us, the name of the game is consistency. Our promise to our clients is that if you place a Concord Dental Lab crown in the mouth of a patient that you placed a Concord Dental Lab crown in the mouth of 10 years ago, they're going to match. They're going to be consistent. Yeah. And our systems are all geared towards that. And bringing in one-off designers on occasion when we need them went directly in the face of that promise that we make to our clients. Yep. A friend of ours owns a lab in India and they kind of have the opposite problem over there. They have more technicians than they know what to do with. And it's difficult for them to keep everyone employed. You know, the wages are very different there. So their approach is really to have more on staff and they'll use them as they need them. So what we did is, you know, I spoke to Anand who owns the laboratory and I said, you know, can we do training here in the United States? Bring the technician to the United States, train them in how we design. I'll put a three-shape license in your laboratory that belongs to us. And when we have an overflow of designs, we are going to send them to you and these technicians, Concord Dental Lab employees, will be responsible for those designs. And it really has worked unbelievably well. It's been kind of the pressure release on the laboratory because, you know, bottlenecks are what kills efficiency. Yes. And the number one bottleneck we ran into was in the digital realm. Yep. As a Same laboratory here. that's kind of in the, I put us in kind of the mid to higher range market, you know, just because of where we are in New England, dentistry is expensive here. The expectation yeah. is high here. So we're not doing 30 click designs. You know, we're committing 10, 15, sometimes 20 minutes to a single unit to get a design that matches the morphology that's necessary. Wow. So not just the kind of thing where we can say, all right, longer hours push through the pile. You're going to see a real dramatic reduction in quality by using that model. Interesting. Yeah. We do the same. So, and it definitely works. I, I would agree. Yeah. The fact that you put the license in their laboratory and you own the license, correct? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. That was smart. So how many did you train from India? The way we did it is Anand, the owner of the laboratory, came over for the in-person training. So he spent about two weeks with us in the laboratory with our CAD CAM department. And then he returned home and we sent him some designs. So he designed using what he learned here himself. Yeah. And then using LogMeIn and, you know, WebEx and some other live training systems, we gauged his work. He sat there live and got feedback from our team on what he produced. And then he turned and trained the other three people on his team. And we put them through the same process where we'd send them five designs. We would critique those five designs and make adjustments to what was necessary in the training. And, you know, it it was kind of a a quid pro quo where Anand now has some designers on staff that design at a pretty high level and utilize that in his laboratory. And I'm fine with that. What were they using before? Were they already using 3Shape? They had, uh, what system were they using? I'm trying to think what they were One using. we don't have here in America, maybe? It may have been. It was very similar to 3Shape, where the jump yeah. was overly difficult. It was more just learning where the buttons were. Sure. Actually, it may have been dental wings. 
uh, or a, yeah, an Indian version of dental wings that yeah. they were using. But it was similar enough that we really didn't have to make a huge jump towards training about the basics of, of CAD CAM design. It was really yeah. just the details. But how much different in the actual designs? Did you notice like a huge difference in, I don't know, Indian design compared to American <laughs> design? We did, you know. That's and interesting. It, it, it was substantial. You know, the philosophy on dentistry is a little different. You know, in certain areas of Mumbai, it's more about chewing surface. It's really not about aesthetic. And mm, it really yeah. depends on what the expectation is. And let's face it, there are plenty of laboratories here in the U.S. that the function is, is really focused on chewing surface. Yeah. The, the aesthetic scale slides drastically depending upon where you are, who your clients are, and what you're trying to sell, your price point, all of those different components. I completely agree with that. There's a lot of industries within the industry within the industry here. Yeah. <laughs> So you must send these designs out at night, and then by the time you come in in the morning, they're there? Mm -hmm. Yep, so they're two and a half hours ahead of us. So we are able to just send out the scans at the end of the day, come in the next morning, and they're waiting for us. That's nice. It is. And, you know, I do the same thing, and it is really nice because you can send the scans off, and I'm on a WhatsApp, so I'll look at the work, you know, throughout the night, and then I come in, and it's all ready to roll. And as long as you've trained them properly and they know exactly what you're looking for and where your demand is for aesthetics, mm-hmm. function, that stuff, then I'm telling you, it's, it works really well because basically you're, you're saving so much time. You come in, boom, everything's ready to roll. So Absolutely. And as long as that person that's doing the design kind of has that same skin in the game that your on-site team members do, where if you say to them, you know, this design wasn't good enough, they don't just say, oh, I don't care. I'll just move on to the next one. They actually care. And you can have that ongoing back and forth conversation. That's the crucial thing for us is always a willingness to improve and a willingness to focus on making the product better every single time we do it. Did you guys choose the library that you wanted to go with on your interiors like Matt Roberts or Lee Culp or? No, we, we really don't. Ready? This is the, this is the sacrilege in the space. We don't really use a library. We have kind of a starting library that we use, but for the most part, everything is, is completely customized. Nice. I like that. You know, Dr. Miller's approach, which is really what kind of formed my dad's position on everything, is that it really comes down. Dental technicians don't have much artistic license because we're making something that is supposed to match the existing dentition. So a lot of what the end result looks like is dictated to you by what's already in the mouth. So his training system is a lot more based in not focusing on what teeth are supposed to look like, but more learning to take cues from what exists within the mouth to make restorations that essentially disappear within the existing dentition. Yeah. You damn well sound like a dental technician. <laughs> I, I hang around them enough to kind of sponge it. You know, I, 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 I got to say. Dangerous. Have you ever made anything? I have not. No. Not even tried. Not even tried. You know, I, I've sat down at a CAD machine before. I understand them enough. You know, obviously there's a risk associated with being a business owner that can't do the thing that your business does. Yeah. I know that. You know, that's that's a unique yeah. relationship that I have in the lab space that a lot of other lab owners don't have. And I actually think it's one of our greatest strengths because it requires me to have a relationship with our team that's different than any other owner team relationship. Interesting. I know that I can't function without them. And I like to show up every day and prove to them that their life is better because of what I'm doing. 
and what I'm there to push them in a direction to do. And as long as we can maintain that balance, then the respect and the teamwork and the growth is really just kind of happens. You don't even need to make it happen. When I make the decision to bring on a new product or a new service or a new piece of equipment, it's not just me sitting in the corner office making a decision. I lay out my expectations from a business financial performance standpoint. But then we get to sit down with the managers of those departments and say, okay, here's what I'm thinking. Give me what you disagree with or what you think we need to explore more. And it's a much more team-oriented approach to growth. Yeah, because then you get everybody's buy-in and everybody's opinion and they all sharing it. And it's not just like, all right, it's my way. Let's do this. Exactly. And I try and actively, you know, my father's constantly involved, even though, you know, I'll retire before he does. He's never going to leave. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> he says all the time, they're going to drag him out of there with a molar imprinted in his forehead. That's pretty much the only, oh, yeah. <laughs> the only way he's leaving the laboratory. But I do actively try and exclude him from these conversations as much as possible, because the only reason I took on this project and I wanted to buy the laboratory was to create a sustainable business. And, you know, it's very easy to get a new CEO. People like me are a dime a dozen. I'm out there. You know, if I go down, replace me. It's not easy to replace a key man on a dental lab team. So very true. I have actively built a laboratory that focuses on no key people. We don't have key players. I won't allow a product line to be in the laboratory that relies on one person if it takes up more than 5% of our business. So, for example, we do offer a high-end custom shade product where the patient comes to the laboratory. We've got photography, televisions mounted on the wall, lots of patient interaction and buy-in. It's a really great product for local dentists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My dad's the only one that does it because he's using what he learned from Lloyd to be able to achieve it. So yeah. I don't allow those custom shade cases to make up any more than 5% of our overall business because hmm. my dad gets hit by a bus tomorrow. There goes that wing of the business. And yeah. there's a lot of kind of those traps in the industry right now. They're, they're profitability traps. And the biggest one right now is the chairside conversions. Those are just yeah. dangling cash in the face of dental technicians saying, you know, they're so profitable and they're so essentially easy once you have a system. You know, if you yeah. know what you're doing, that's printing cash. The problem is, is it's so patient and so dentist facing that your performance needs to be very high. It needs to go right the first time and it needs to be quick. And the only way you're going to get that consistently is by either having your best technician go, or in most cases, the owner of the laboratory go. Which is crippling. Yep. It's hugely crippling. Mm. You know, never mind the fact yep. that then your, your cash mix gets thrown off. This highly, highly profitable product that can now very quickly make up, in some laboratories cases, 60 or 70% of their revenue hinges on this one human being, and it can't be replicated. That's suicide. That is just lighting the fuse and waiting for the day that it explodes, which in a lot of lab settings, if sustainability and longevity and passing to the next generation or a sale isn't necessarily your goal, then by all means, milk the cash cow as long as you can. That's the thing in business. But if your focus is to build a sustainable company that essentially you step away from and it continues to generate dollars, then that is not a product line that you want to consider. So it's very interesting. In the consulting that I do, I haven't done a lot in the lab space, but the conversation is really the same. What is your goal? Do you want to be sitting on the beach in Aruba and having your lab sending you a paycheck? Do you want to be in your laboratory <laughs> on the front line actively making teeth? You know, there's yeah. different goals. Do you want this to transition to a child? Do you want to sell it at the end of the day? 
all of those really personal decisions should impact on a daily basis how you approach your company. You're talking a little close to home over here, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I know. We do a lot of those conversions, but it's just the owner and he's the only one that does them. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're aware of the boogeyman. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We're one guy away from losing that whole aspect of our uh, business. So you're going to start it, aren't you? I don't, you know, no. <laughs> the way you counteract that, you know, and this isn't the natural thought in dentistry, but it is in every other industry. So if I'm working with the printing company and they say we have this one line of thousand dollar restaurant menus, that's very exclusive, very small, but we make a ton of money on it. We can't let them go, which essentially would represent chair side conversions. My answer to them would be, okay, so go out and build up your cheap menu business so that the ratio of what your large niche product takes up in your overall business is smaller. That's how you mitigate the risk. More $69 crowns. I hear you. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's kind of counterintuitive by saying, okay, yeah. I'm going to protect myself from high profit cases by bringing in more mediocre cases. But it really all comes down to when one wing of the company goes down, how much cash is left by what's generated in the other parts of the company to sustain. And yeah. You can skin that cat in a lot of different ways. Interesting. So you're talking a lot of fixed. Do you guys do any removable? We don't. Well, okay. We don't with, we don't with an asterisk. We've always had a removable lab that's from 1962. They've leased space wow. in our building all the way through to today. Um, wow. Yeah. As kind of an exciting project that is interesting to talk about now because it will just kind of be rolling as this probably becomes public. I am working on a deal to acquire a denture lab right now. So mm. we will be using 2021 to be the year that we convert to full service. That's awesome. Are you looking to bring that in and keep it digital? Because that's the uh, on the fence with removable right now. Exactly. So the thing that makes me most excited is I found a denture lab that has an owner that is several decades into the industry, but still has a decade or two ahead of her that she wants to be here. So she's got yeah. the analog skill. Ah. No technology at all in the denture lab. They have none of it. So my plan is essentially to bring her in and let her operate as she is now. No technology. And then we'll start to have conversations about what existing technology that we already have in the building can we start to use in the removable space before we even talk about investing in something new or rolling the dice on which digital denture we're going to you know, sink all our money into. You know, We can kind of baby step this. I, as a laboratory, I have zero interest in being a, an early adopter in anything. I don't think in the yeah. industry... That is a huge advantage like it is in other places. So you're not going to bring this technician over, put her in front of a carbon and say good luck? <laughs> no. No. Oh, that's not a good idea. Interesting. No. no. You know, I would much rather, you know, again, I don't think dental technology first. I think profitability first. So I think if I bring her in and say, you operate the way you operate, but let me take a look at the invoicing, your pricing, your operations model. I can generate probably an increased 15 or 20% efficiency just in what she's already doing mm. without having to touch anything. So with that, I can figure out, all right, what is my resource pool that I've generated that I can now use to reinvest in building this wing of the laboratory? Nice. Nice. 
be similar to what you did with your father. And Exactly. It's really, we're just going to try and replicate the same thing over again. Because it worked really well and you didn't, you know, force people into it, kind of brought them in. And, exactly. Oh, I like it. I, that's genius. And from there, the goal has never really been to have a large laboratory. I think there's a certain size laboratory that's controllable by a management team. And I think we've kind of reached that. You know, we can add the removable and growth from there, in my eyes, is essentially going to be stepping out and replicating this conquered dental laboratory somewhere else, you know, not necessarily shooting towards building one large 150 technician under one roof. I don't think I possess the skill sets required to effectively run that type of company. You don't want to be the Glidewell of the East? I don't, no. I, <laughs> as much as I would love to be able to say I have five or 6,000 employees, as a lab owner that doesn't do dental technology, I am always going to rely on building really incredible teams. And yeah. those teams are much better created in smaller environments. You're eliminating all of that my focus area in college was behavioral science. I have a degree in uh, behavioral techniques in, in business management. That explains a lot why you're so good in a lab. <laughs> we yeah. have a lot of behavior issues. There's, there's <laughs> a lot of interesting personalities in the lab space. It's a yeah. lot of, you know, it's, it's really cool to see kind of how different people interact. And yeah, all team settings, a challenge is, is created the bigger a team gets because there's fight for power, there's fight for attention. There's all of these different kind of built-in human characteristics that we're just unable to, to shake. You know, it's just part of us. And my vision for an industry that's so quality and consistency focused, if we were making toasters, it's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. I can build a company that makes 6,000 toasters a day with 5,000 employees, no problem. But when you're still talking about making replacement human body parts, you know, that is what mm -hmm. you show up to work every day and do. That's not something that can be just brushed off as a production setting. We're not just a manufacturing company. You know, as easy as it is to say, that's what we do. Yeah. We're more. And yeah. it's difficult to build something from my position, you know, not being able to sit down at the bench and say, no, do it like I'm doing it. Yeah. It, I rely on smaller teams that are focused on a smaller demographic say, okay, I'm buying a laboratory, you know, I'm always looking for labs to acquire, you know, and my ideal goal would be to find somewhere a little bit warmer than where I'm dealing with here. In <laughs> uh, but my position on that would be is to like I'm doing with the denture lab, go in, acquire, leave you as you are. And let me bring in my software that I've built. Let me bring in our production systems. Let me bring in my marketing team and our financial team. And you just make teeth. And we'll have a conversation in a few months about how we can improve at making tea. But in the beginning, let's just keep things the way they are. Interesting. Hey, man, it sounds like it's working real well for you. <laughs> yeah. Like any other lab, you have your good days and your bad days. There are, there sure. are days where I'm driving home and I say, you know, I should have just gotten a job at Target because, <laughs> you know, I do what my manager tells me to do. I go home and then I watch TV and eat dinner, you know? There's, yeah. There are yeah. definitely days like that, but there's more good days than there are bad days for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we do it. Yeah. So what is your dad doing now? Does he do zirconia? Does he layer? His role that we've now finally settled in is he is what we call the director of dental technology. So his role is overseeing the quality control areas. He does all of our training and improvement. He will stack porcelain. You know, he's got a few clients of his that are 35 years strong. And when they have a case, it's, it's his to do. 
But for the most part, his role now is a floating outside the realm of required production. Because as much as I like to say that he'll never retire, I would be doing a disservice as a son to put him in a position where he can't retire. Yeah. So he's building the next generation and the next generation. Exactly. But he's doing it in a way where if tomorrow that condo down in Boca catches his eye and that's what he wants. (laughs) And it's gonna. (laughs) It it might, you know, and when that day comes, the laboratory will be able to continue. And that's the biggest focus. And I bet you he loves the hell out of that, doesn't he? It's a lot of fun. You know, there are definitely days where it's hard for him to snap out of that in-house technician mindset where mm-hmm. he'll say, if I only had a couple more hours with this crown, it could be better. And I have mm. to explain to him that, well, the doctor is not willing to pay you for a couple more hours. Yeah. <laughs> we give them that option. We have a high dollar product, but they're choosing not to use. It. And that's a really tough mentality for someone who's 40 years in the industry to break. And quite frankly, I don't want to break him too much of that because that's what I rely on to be kind of the other end of my tug of war when I'm having a conversation about what's best for the laboratory. I need input that is exclusively focused on dental technology. It doesn't mean I'm going to go all in on his point of view, but it gives me that opposing view that I rely on to make a down the middle appropriate decision for the lab. Yeah. It can't all be about profit all the time. Exactly. No, yeah. that's a split. Does he design at all? Did he get into that or? Not at all. He, he no. couldn't tell you how to turn on the CAD machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but he, interestingly enough, he can't turn them on, but he trains all of our designers. Interesting. And yeah. the way he does that is he went home and he made this little plexiglass thing that hooks over the screen of a computer. So he can <laughs> take a dry erase marker. and. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's actually fantastic. sit there and, and that's that conversation about bridging the analog and the digital. That's hilarious. In his conversation, I hear him say it, and I'm sure the designers are ready to, you know, carve it into their arm. He says all the time, if I can move wax with my hands to make this happen, you can move the mouse to make it happen. Yeah. And <laughs> it's all about just understanding the relationship from one to the other. And he's able to build a really great we you know, we've taken scanners off the street that have come on to learn digital scanning and he's trained them how to be designers and by taking the dental component out of it and just talking about symmetry and mimicry and understanding morphology you can take someone who's never been in the mouth of a patient and teach them the core concepts of digital design Mm -hmm. that's awesome i love the dry eraser Uh that is (laughs) classic yeah I need you to do this. I don't know how do you do it. Just do it. Exactly. You're going to stand here until you figure out how to do it. (laughs) That's awesome. So you're looking at removables. What else is Concord looking at doing? Honestly, 2021 coming out of of COVID is really focused on taking a walk around the ship to make sure there's no dings in the bow, essentially. Mm. Really taking a look at where are we coming out of this? We were extremely lucky. We are very busy now. We've been busy since the lab reopened from the kind of two-month hiatus that the state wanted us to take. But that doesn't mean that you just close your eyes and keep going. You have to really stop and evaluate, okay, what did we learn from this? Where are our weaknesses? How can we shore this up? Because essentially with the removable project and all the other things we have coming down the road, I'm just stacking more blocks on top of the same foundation. So it's really crucial to make sure that there's no weak points. And for me, I figured out very quickly that I was missing a key component that I never in a million years would have even thought of. You know, I have a great legal team. I have a great financial team. I have a great tax team. 
But I had no state connection. You know, we don't have a state lab group here in Massachusetts. Yeah. A few of us. My plan is to change that in the next few months. That has definitely become a priority so that we're represented. But what I was able to do through COVID is pester some local state lawmakers to become my new best friend and at the same time build some really great relationships at Mass Dental Society and make sure that the Mass Dental Society remembers that there are labs here, you know, and that we are a member of the dental team too. And those relationships have come to be incredibly, incredibly valuable, you know, in the vaccine push, for example. You know, yesterday yeah. In Massachusetts, the Mass Dental Society had pushed and dentists are now eligible to schedule their vaccinations. So in my relationship and communication with the Mass Dental Society, the president made a point to communicate to all of the Mass Dental members to reach out to your local labs and invite them to be vaccinated with you. Nice. So we've now bridged this gap where there's representation, even on a really low level. But never before COVID would I have even realized that that lack of representation on a state level had an actual impact to my personal business and that it needed to be fortified. If you're going to have a $50,000 investment in something, you can say, ah, the risk can be a little higher. But as you're building your machine and you've got three, four, five, six, ten million $10 million invested in an organization, you don't want to be you know, messing around with boogeymen in the closet that you don't have any control over. And yeah. By having contacts at a state level to say, hey, I'm here, I'm in your state, I do what you do, and I need you to recognize that I exist. Mm-hmm. That's not a comfortable position to be in, in the middle of a pandemic. You, you no. want to have that representation long before the pandemic starts. So that was one area that was definitely not on my radar that has now become a top three priority in this year is, you know, working with the NADL and really making sure that those amazing resources that the NADL provides to us are available at a state level and are recognized at a state level. Yeah, I agree. Are you looking to start an association out there? You know, I haven't said the words, but I'm definitely thinking about it. You know, I I think there's a lot of really great people in the industry out here and there aren't a lot of us, but I think that's an even bigger reason to consider it because it's important to have some friends. Has there ever been one in that state? There was. You know, my my yeah. father was a part of it years and years and years. Really ago. interesting. It kind of drifted away. No one wanted to do it. Yeah. There's definitely some bones there that we can build off of. I would imagine most of the original members. It's probably their children running the laboratories that yeah. were involved in it now. So. That's kind of fun for me is to be able to say, okay, what generation are you? Where where are you? <laughs> because I'm in awe of all of these folks because most of them are technicians. They can do things that I couldn't do in a million years. And yeah. that's really exciting to me to see. Well, they always say it's not how many people you have. Mm-hmm. The right people, the loud people, the, the passionate exactly. people. That makes all the difference. Right. And it was kind of a kick in the face for me. You know, a lot of the consulting that I had done in my experience in the past was with really big, powerful companies. So there was really no hesitation. If Lockheed didn't have something that they wanted, Lockheed gets what they want. Yeah. But here I am, this tiny little dental lab in Massachusetts, and I have a need at a state level that I never in a million years imagined I would need. And now I have no path to get it. That was a very, very uncomfortable position to be in, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time focused on planning and being prepared for what's coming next. That was a scary one. Yeah, nobody could have. (laughs) (laughs) 
absolutely. So before we wrap up, coming up on an hour, you are going to be on stage at the April Visions in Nashville, Tennessee, hosting a panel about labs coming out of pandemic and COVID and how they kind Mm. of dealt with it. And you've touched upon it here. So, you know, touch about what you think this panel is going to be doing at Visions. It's exciting. The panel's called, you know, From Survive to Thrive, Lessons Learned from the Pandemic. So we're keeping it really kind of broad and open-ended because there's a lot of kind of cool areas that I'm hoping this goes, you know, that we may not have thought about before. There's obviously talking about, you know, process changes and what those outcomes look like in the laboratory, you know, being short-staffed. A lot of labs converted to a work-from-home model, which was really cool. Yeah. And we'd like to talk a lot more about how many of those changes stuck, you know, now that the pandemic's kind of wrapping itself up or we have a, at least a site to the end, what's going to stick? Are any of these changes going to stay? And what stories do you have to share that other people may find valuable? So we're going to have a pretty cool panel. We're still waiting for the confirmation on a few of the panelists, but as of right now, uh, it's going to be Josh Polanski, myself, and then we have a few other lab owners and managers that are essentially going to sit up there and share some war stories about what 2020 was like in the lab space. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for some good audience interaction and we can really share some pretty cool ideas about how we can grow stronger as an industry going forward. Yeah. I love it. That sounds super exciting. I can't wait. And last year was your first visions, right? It was. Yeah. I, honestly, you know, congratulations. You go to one yeah, and then you're I, on the stage the next one. That's pretty yeah. <laughs> I'm in the river. I can't get out of it. (laughs) But it's exciting. You know, last year before I got the random email one day inviting me to be a part of it, I didn't see, again, it should have been the beacon that reminded me that representation and involvement in the industry is important. But the lab Mm -hmm. space feels so isolated that sometimes it's very difficult to remember that there is a national organization and that you may never in a million years think that your lab is big enough to benefit from what the NADL has to offer, but that is 100% not true. There's always, always something that can be gained by sharing ideas and, and having conversations with people that show up to a building similar to yours just on the other side of the country every day, and they do exactly what you do. Yeah. I was always hesitant because I'm not a tech, you know, so I thought these were meetings where, you know, people go sit there and compare pictures of the work that they made last week. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that there was a group focused on business conversation. And when I got invited to Vision, it was mind blowing to me that there are so many people that in this industry are focused on the same things that I'm focused on. We're all doing it in a very different way, but our goals and our end vision is very similar. Yeah, And it's been hugely exciting. I encourage absolutely everybody I talk to, to get involved with the NADL, get involved with, you know, this vision event in particular, but most importantly, just get out to as many events as you possibly can. It's very hard. I know, you know, I watched my dad for years and years and years. I heard him talk about, you know, there's this great meeting in Chicago every year, great meeting in Chicago every year. I don't think I ever remember my dad actually going to Chicago, but he oh. always the conversation of, well, there's too many cases right now. I'm too busy. Yeah, too busy. I can't get away. I can't get out there and do it. But until you do that first meeting and you realize what you can gain from it, what this is really going to do for you as a business owner or even as a single technician is so huge. And I, I just can't praise this idea of, of getting involved or even just attending. You don't even have to get involved. Come and sit quietly in the back. 
but just listen to what's going on. Awesome. Well said. I mean, I, I had the exact same thought when I first went, I don't know, six, eight years ago or something. I had no idea the industry was so connected and it was such a great experience. It's going to be interesting not being in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You know, that definitely was, but Nashville's beautiful. So yeah, really yeah. no, no loss there either. It's just, we'll have to be a little bit better behaved this time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Or not. Yeah, we're... <laughs> yeah there's really yeah. no rules anywhere. Barb's not president anymore. Look out, everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, that's amazing. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about your story, the non-technical side. It's, it's great what you're doing, and I think a lot can be learned. I appreciate the opportunity. Us business guys in the industry, we're here, but I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation and build some friendships, see where we go from yeah. here, what we can do together. Awesome. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. We will see you in Nashville. I'll be there. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. You too. Whitmix is super excited to announce the new Pro 4K large format 3D printer from Asiga. The open material printer for 385NM and 405NM resins features renowned Asiga reliability and super fast print mode for large batch printing of virtually all print resins. It's ideal for printing any kind of model, dentures, splints, surgical guides, impression trays, and more. As with other Asiga printers, the Pro 4K features the SPS, Smart Positioning System Technology, which ensures that the build platform is in the correct position when forming each layer, providing repeatable accuracy and production continuity. The Asiga Pro 4K DL printer is priced at under 25 grand has a large build plate, and is available in both versions. For more information about the Asiga Pro 4K, visit Whitmix.com. We appreciate your support of the podcast, Whitmix. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast, Mike. We super loved hearing about second-generation lab owners, and we like, even though you didn't pick up your dad's skill for the craft, you were able to run and are able to run a successful business using your own past experiences. If you guys want to learn more about what Mike is doing, head over to NADL.org and register to go to the Vision 21 meeting in April. Mike is hosting what sounds to be, and I'm sure is going to be, an amazing panel discussion. And one of the great things about Vision is you can pick his brain about any of the other things he talked about during one of the many events happening during the Vision 21 meeting. Remember, it's all about networking and learning from others. So join us April 8th through 10th at Vision 21. Awesome. I can't wait for it. Me neither. All right, everybody. That's all we got for you. Have a good one. See ya. Bye. Bye. Uh, officially, guys. Yeah. I'm going out of town. You should put some of those blips on this. <laughs> 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 <laughs>